So we've talked about inflexibility of institutions, and we, we'll, we'll now proceed on with this. Um, so it's the impact of climate change research. Um, I'm one of those climate scientists who was unable to speak in public that uh, Judith Davenport was talking about, so uh, I won't try and get my message across at this moment. But, um, I'm also director of the, the other Grantham Institute, the one at the Imperial College. So here we're talking about impact of climate change research, and we have a global stage for this. And I'm going to slightly change the order so that we can switch this thing off afterwards so our speakers don't have this shiny in their eyes. So Jason Lowe from the Met Office is going to start us off. Jason is a climate scientist, true, and he always puts his message over very clearly. And he's now head of integration, uh, which is a wonderful thing to be. Um, head of integration, uh, knowledge integration and mitigation advice as well. So, Jason. Okay, well, as a climate scientist, I've got to show at least one slide. And so I'm going to show my one slide. And I wanted to show this really to frame the question. This is the latest type of results that we're providing to uh, people like Mafis. And the plot on the left, this focuses on the issue of what do you need to do in terms of emissions to stay below two degrees? We're constantly focusing on this uh, two degree global average near surface temperature limit, but what does it mean in terms of either peak year for emissions or the long term reduction rate for emissions? So each of these dots represents a solution of the climate model we've been running to look at this. Each of these dots says, well, this will give you a, at least 50% chance of staying below the two degree limit. The blue and purple, I, everything above this red line, these are the scenarios that don't include any negative emissions. So everything below the red line, at some point in the future, actually involves sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere. For instance, as you might do by burning biofuels in carbon capture and storage plant. And in terms of the flexibility, when you look at this type of scenario, well, if you want to stay above the red line, and there the problem you've got is one of reducing emissions, then you're really looking at peaking emissions in the next few years, certainly this decade. And the price of um, wanting to delay that is to strain to this area where, for instance, you're getting into the realm of having to compete between biofuels <coughs> and food supply. I thought it was interesting, and I particularly wanted to show the plot on the right by contrast. And <coughs> I want to use that to illustrate a point that the science very much isn't done, even around thinking of the targets. Supposing you say, well, what if we might become content with limiting warming to two and a half degrees? Does that buy us actually much flexibility? Well, in terms of either the peak year or the reduction rates in the long term that you need to stay below that target, it actually buys a great deal of flexibility. And it reduces the, uh, the need for negative emissions certainly the larger negative emissions estimates from this plot. I just wanted to show that because this is probably one of the, I think it is the latest result we've got from the um, AVOID program. And 
it actually looks quite different than some of the earlier ones. And this idea of focusing on a wider range of temperature limits is something that the science can do, um, coming from the point of view of not, uh, not focusing on pushing one scenario or another. So I'm going to turn off at this point and get rid of, hopefully, the projector, and just continue from, from down here. So the main point I want to get across is, as a provider of the climate science, the climate science is very much not done. There are many things that we know with confidence, but there's still a great deal of uncertainty. So if we look at the change in climate over the past um, few decades or the past century, then virtually all climate scientists will agree that there has been an increase in temperature. There's also been a change in many other aspects of the climate system. So we've seen the heat content of the oceans increase. We've seen sea level rise. And we can measure the reduction in the extent of glaciers or sea ice. There's also increasing evidence that there's a human fingerprint in this now quite vast array of change signals. But that doesn't mean that every event that we see is caused by climate change. And I think there's a growing appreciation that there's a need for climate science to really look at the sort of individual events that impact on people, um, particular warm seasons or hopefully in the future, particular high-intensity rainfall events that lead to flooding, and give an account of whether um, the rise in surface temperature and the change in climate has altered the likelihood of those. That's useful from the point of view of the narrative around the changing climate, and also for a sensible adaptation policy. When we look towards the future, again, there's uncertainty. All of the models agree that as emissions rise, the temperature rises. And across the academic community, I think there's also um, an increasing acceptance on the minimum amount of warming for instance, for a doubling of CO2 in the atmosphere. So there's a great deal we do know, and we're starting to bound the problem. But there's still sufficient uncertainty around the amount of global, and more particularly local, climate change that the impacts remain uncertain. So the type of cost-benefit analysis that people refer to in terms of um, defining a precise uh, goal in terms of temperature, those are subject to uncertainty. And that uncertainty is still being explored from the climate science. I'd like to highlight in particular the view over uh, the word dangerous or potentially dangerous climate change. And I find here you get a very different response depending on who you're talking to. So, for instance, if you're in a debate with climate scientists, a discussion on dangerous climate change will probably focus on thresholds in the climate system. For instance, thresholds associated with irreversibility in terms of melting the Greenland ice sheet, which contributes to sea level rise, or um, an abrupt change in the circulation of the currents in the Atlantic, which can affect temperature, uh, it can affect sea level rise, it can affect rainfall over large parts of the northern hemisphere. 
if you take that discussion to analysts that want to go beyond the science, then very quickly you start talking about impacts, impacts on people and the cost of those impacts. And if you take the discussion further to many policymakers, then that vast array of climate science and even costing and economics is often boiled down to what are often taken as very simple targets, such as limiting global average warming below two degrees. Even there, there's vast uncertainty in what would be a sensible level. And I think there's a renewed focus, for instance, on looking at lower targets, such as a 1.5 degree level driven by small island states. An area, certainly in science, that I think some climate scientists have been slow to catch on, we're only starting to do that now, is to realize climate science is not just about trying to uh, define a potential problem, it's also about contributing to solutions and contributing to issues such as a transition to a low carbon economy. So climate science is now starting to feed into issues around renewables or biofuels and uh, how one might cite those. And I think as we go forward, we really need to see more of the science being used in this way of looking at uh, global transition. So to finish, the particular issue of how we feed these results into uh, the policy forum. I thought it would be useful to take um, a very brief and unscientific survey of my colleagues working on the Avoid project. Let's come up with some of the, the hurdles to getting this type of information across. The first thing they highlighted was relevance. By relevance, it's very easy as a climate scientist to get lost in the very fine detail of how uh, the climate is changing in some obscure quantity and the error bars around that. But actually, we find increasingly putting that into a narrative that is useful to the policymakers who want to perhaps use that information uh, is becoming increasingly important. That might be a focus on people, it might be a focus on economics. Uncertainty, we've heard in the earlier sessions how it's actually quite difficult, um, where it would be nice to provide a single number, but the fact is the science is still uncertain. Um, but I think we're seeing step forwards in terms of risk-based approaches to address that. But what that doesn't address really is the, the transience of uh, some of the climate knowledge. We're actually learning a lot more um, about the climate system and certainly have done so in the past five years or so. The models have taken a massive leap forward. We've had much more information coming from observational studies. But there's still the fact that even our view of how, for instance, rainfall might change over Europe in the coming 20 or 30 years is subject to very, um, very wide uncertainty. And we're learning that some of the older models we use are starting to perhaps not agree with the newer results we're seeing as we build more physics into the models. There's also an issue over timescales of delivery. A lot of climate science has quite long lead times, and often policy questions are much shorter than those, and I think there's a balancing act between the, uh, the lead times of the science and the timescale of immediate policy questions. 
There also needs to be a framework to receive the information when it's delivered. And I think it's fair to say, sometimes scientists speak slightly different languages to the people we're delivering to. But I think we're trying to get over that. Finally, when we're looking at this science that really sits at the interface between what we traditionally see as the hard time of science and policy, we can sometimes fall into a gap when it comes to funding agencies. And I think there is a real issue of recognizing this translation phase of the hard science into a form that's much more useful. Um, at the moment, that, that's a small issue, but as we try to do more of this translation process, you could imagine that might become more of an issue. I think I'll leave it there, just a few thoughts to okay. start the process going. Thank you very much, Jeff. So we move on to Nafis Mir, who's going to be the second uh, speaker. And Nafis is head of the Climate and Energy Science Analysis team in DEC. And he's also been in DEFRA and MAP before. And before that, he was a practicing scientist as a chemist. So he's, he's been through this as well, so I've seen both sides of it. So over to you, Nafis. Thank you. Um, yes, I'm at an institution of higher education and learning. I, I sent myself an exam question, and the exam question is how is, how is academic research on climate change, scientific, economic, and social affected government policy? So that's the exam question. Well, there's a simple answer to that in this policy area. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that uh, climate change and energy policy would not be where it is today without a huge contribution of academic research. And I'd go far to say that. My department, the Department of Energy and Climate Change, exists only because of the high impact academic research on the science and economics of climate change and how we respond to that challenge. It could not be done without it. It's an area where science has a direct impact on government policy, and we certainly think of ourselves as an evidence-based department. It would be very odd in this area if we weren't so, and we didn't say that we were so. I mean, if I can explain what my team does, and that gives you a little bit more context, uh, and it shows how we might engage with researchers and the academic community more broadly. Um, Brian uh, mentioned that I was head of science innovation, uh, head of uh, uh, climate science and energy analysis team. That sits with a bigger team, the science and innovation group, headed by the chief scientific advisor, David Mackay. Um, what my team does is cover three areas. The first area is climate science, we're working very closely with people like Jason. And that fundamentally sets out the case for action. Why should government do anything? Why should this government and governments around the world do anything? Uh, second area is uh, greenhouse gas inventory. We, we measure uh, the emissions in the UK uh, and report them manually to the Commission, European Commission and, uh, uh, and the UNFCCC. The finally, uh, technical energy analysis, how do we respond? Uh, which looks at the whole issue of energy efficiency as a first step to reducing greenhouse gas emissions, looks at balancing the electricity system, etc. So we can move to a low carbon society, low carbon economy, whilst maintaining uh, quite important other values like energy security and uh, avoiding fuel poverty. Um, Together with DEFRA, we fund the Hadley Centre, which arguably is the uh, leading geoscience institute in the world. 
uh, in due respect to Kingdom and others. Um, we have research programs that cover very broad areas, things like land use change, you mentioned the greenhouse gas inventory, looking at um, uh, what happens in terms of climate impacts both in this country and abroad. So we've got major programs of research looking at climate impacts in agriculture in China and in India. Uh, in all these areas, uh, our policy making, and we make policy both in, in, in my department, both in terms of UK and how the UK was uh, respond, but also in, in the international negotiations and setting out what the UK position is in those negotiations. And in all those areas, the research has to play a very important role in informing the positions that we take. I guess if you go back in time, the Keeling curve are, of atmospheric carbon dioxide uh, emissions is, is the mother and father of all you know, high-impact academic research. Now it starts off a, 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 as academic, purely academic research, but now it is, um, it's fundamentally affecting the way governments are responding around the world. And, you know, the, uh, and more recently, if you look at major, major pieces of legislation like the Climate Change Act, set up the uh, Committee on Climate Change, and, and no doubt we'll be hearing a little bit more about that, very much informed by scientific analysis. Uh, the two degree target, which uh, Jason has mentioned, again, uh, the work that um, Brian and uh, his colleagues did on the uh, CCC initially has been adopted worldwide as, as, as the metric for avoiding dangerous climate change. Uh, we've recently published our science and innovation strategy, you might find that on the website, uh, and that sets out uh, in some detail how we take that science, how we take that research uh, that's, that both we commission, but also that goes on that's funded by other sponsors, and bring it into the policy making process. So we see um, that uh, uh, setting out well, the essential point that uh, science, technology, innovation are absolutely at the heart of both understanding how the climate changes uh, is responding to greenhouse gas emissions and also how we need to respond uh, as a government to uh, the challenge of transitioning to a low carbon economy. Now, in addition to recognising that uh, climate change is, is happening, we need to understand that the response is going to be an irreducibly social process. Uh, that's sometimes uh, overlooked. Uh, when, when one starts developing policies, you start thinking in terms of the economic cost benefits, etc., the science and what the technical uh, specialists and engineers and scientists are telling you. But at the end of the day, transition is not going to happen because someone pulls a lever. It happens because society as a whole uh, collectively decides to embark on the path, decides to change. So it's absolutely essential, and we recognise in our department, that we understand how social transformations happen, how people change behaviour, and how, how, uh, how uh, new information is incorporated uh, into people's actions. So that's why we have a, a major group within the team, within the department, looking at customer insight. And more recently, we've set up a uh, social science expert committee, which will help us take the best of that research that's happening in the UK and, 
and, and bring that in, feed that into our policy-making process. Because at the end of the day, there's not much point developing policies that have no traction in the real world. Uh, we've had a, a few experiences of that lately. It's very important that we that we do understand how society, how segments of society, respond um, to new information, to the challenges that we face. Uh, I'm emphasising the importance of social science because it is about social transformation. The society that we live in today, very much based on fossil fuels, is not <coughs> going to be the same as the society where we'll have to live in 2030, even, never mind 2050. So there's going to be a uh, massive transformational change. And I just want to leave you with this uh, thought that um, we, we can't get into the position of saying the sign says X, therefore you must do Y. Because if you, t if you take that very reductionist view, uh, it's very likely that uh, uh, there'll be more opposition uh, and objection than if you try to uh, understand what the for social forces are that are going on and, and work with the grain of society rather than against it. Okay, thank you, Rufus. Oh, you're lurking there. I thought you had me worried. <laughs> right, so we, we've heard about the Climate Change Committee in the previous session and now mentioned, and David Kennedy then is going to come talk to us now. So David was at the World Bank before he became Chief Executive of the Committee on Climate Change, and I think we... Uh, those of us who are on the committee certainly owe David a great deal for steering the whole thing along. So, David, over to you. Thank you, uh, Brian. Good evening, everybody. Uh, was it you who told everybody about the, the climate change? No, it wasn't me. No, no, wasn't no. Okay. So, I can take it that you, you know a, a little bit about what we do, uh, first of all. Um, Brian, you gave me a very broad remit. You said I can just say anything about yep. research. Yep, yep. Uh, the, the way I think I'll use that is, first of all, just to talk you through some of our thought processes in coming to the things that we've recommended to government that are now in legislation. I'll talk a little bit about how we use research in those processes, and I'll finish with some of the big research questions that are on my mind and that we are going to try and answer over the next uh, year or so. So if I take those in turn. Uh, first of all, the story that we've developed, which is around what the UK should do uh, in a world of increasing carbon constraint. And the way that we've developed that story is, first of all, we've said, well, what is it the world should be aiming to do? And there we've drawn on the IPCC evidence base, and we've looked at damages which follow from different emissions pathways and different climate changes. And we framed an objective, uh, and that objective is that we should try to keep central estimates of global temperature change as close as we can to two degrees. And then, if we get into uh, what do we call very dangerous climate change, and we, we have described very dangerous climate change as e.g. greater than four degrees, and we should try to avoid that, uh, we should try to keep probabilities of that at a very low level. So that is the starting point for us, a climate objective. Then we take uh, the work of Jason and others on global emissions pathways, and we say, well, which emissions pathways will deliver that objective for us, and those are characterised by early peaking of global emissions and then deep cuts in emissions from, say, uh, the early 2020s. And if we can be on that path, then we can achieve the objective I've just described. The next stage in developing our story is to say, well, okay, if that's the, the global situation, 
what is it that the UK uh, should be doing and what is our appropriate contribution to the world meeting that climate objective. And there you have to make a judgment and the judgment we made was well the UK should be aiming not to have higher uh, per capita emissions than the world as a whole in 2050. So if the world is aiming for two tonnes per capita emissions in 2050, we shouldn't be aiming for anything above two tonnes, maybe we should be aiming for below. And that's where the 80% target comes from that's in the Climate Change Act. So that's an appropriate UK contribution to a global pathway that will achieve a global climate objective. And then uh, what we've done is work out, well, what are the practical implications of that long-term target? And 2050 is obviously a long time away. Uh, but it does have practical implications for what we should be doing over the next decade and two decades and that for me is the interesting thing, what are those implications and so we spent the last two or three years trying to work out what are the implications of uh, being on a path to meet that longer term target and the way we've done that is very much focused around analysis of technologies and in particular economic analysis of technologies so uh, what we've done is look, look across the uh, the different sectors within the energy system, we look at what are the technologies we use now, we look at well, what are the alternative low carbon technologies, um, we compare the costs of low carbon technologies and high carbon technologies and the different assumptions and that has led us to identify a set of things that we should be doing now that make economic sense on the path to that longer term target. And the high level story is one of early power sector decarbonisation, that's something we should be aiming to do. Uh, through a range of technology, renewables, CCS and nuclear, extending that low carbon power uh, to other sectors, so through electric vehicles and electric forms of heat. And there's an important role as well for things like energy efficiency improvement, insulating our houses and our offices, uh, fuel efficiency improvement of vehicles, and uh, the use of sustainable bioenergy in various sectors. Now, if you put all of that together, uh, we think that we should be aiming for something of the order a 60% emissions cut in this country in 2030 and that is economically sensible on the one hand, it balances the costs and risks on the path to meeting that 2050 target. Uh, the costs associated with it are affordable, so they are less than 1% of GDP, that's how we've defined affordable. And the other impacts are manageable, so if you look at energy affordability in the residential sector, fuel poverty impacts, competitiveness impacts, we think that those are manageable. And that was all uh, embodied, that is the underpinning for our advice on the fourth carbon budget for the government which was legislated uh, in summer last year following a lot of back and forth with the cabinet. Uh, a split in the cabinet between various departments, a lot of resistance from the treasury and from peers but a lot of support from other departments. Uh, that is the, the story and the thought process that underpins uh, the carbon budget that went into legislation is now our legally binding pathway through the 2020s. Now, moving on to, well, how do we use research there? Uh, we are all about evidence and analysis. And actually, we're, we're probably more about evidence and analysis than I had envisaged originally. Um, just by way of an anecdote, uh, for anybody who knows Adair Turner, who is our chairman uh, at the moment, although he's about to be replaced with a new chair, when Adair turned up, we thought, well, he's a high-level guy. Uh, we'll treat him like a minister. Uh, with a minister, what you do is give them a, a, a very short story for each of the areas that you're working on. So we had, for our ten work areas, we prepared three slides for him. And Adair came and he said, that's okay, but I want the, the longer version. I want to see more facts, data and evidence. So we went away and we prepared the ten slides 
for each of the work areas and he said no I want 50 slides for each of those 10 areas and that is the starting point and that's how we've carried on so we're very much about evidence and facts and, and that is crucially important I think it's not for me to say we've been a successful organization but it is for me to say that to the extent we have been successful it is because we're evidence-based and so for example uh, if we are discussing with officials but also politicians uh, then what they are interested in is the evidence that underpins our recommendations. I go back to the fourth carbon budget, I remember having discussions with Jeremy Haywood, the Cabinet Secretary, where he was saying, well, is your argument evidenced? And once he accepted that our argument was evidenced, he'd say, well, is our counter-argument evidenced? And once he accepted that it wasn't, uh, then he knows that he has to accept our advice. And actually, under the Climate Change Act, uh, if we make a well-evidenced argument and if the government is not able to rebut it on a well-evidenced basis, then they have to accept our argument. And if they don't, they will be subject to judicial review under the Climate Change Act. So evidence is crucial. We're only a small organisation. So I have a team of about 30 to 35 people, analysts, mostly economists, but also scientists, technology experts. We have our committee of esteemed people like Brian, uh, other scientists and economists, but there's a limit to what we can do. So the way that we use research is, well, there's a huge evidence base out there. We go and review it. Uh, uh, to try to understand whatever uh, uh, area of, of uh, research that it is we're, we're focusing on to answer the questions that we need to answer. We uh, then work with a whole range of organisations. For example, the Energy Technologies Institute, the Energy Research Partnership. There's a, there's a whole load of people out there doing research in this area, which is highly valuable to us. And then there's a whole load of individuals and academics, again, uh, we work very closely with them. We hire people to do commercial research for us and there we are hiring technical specialist companies and we're hiring individual academics again. And that combination of uh, uh, inputs is how we develop the evidence base which is absolutely fundamental to our advice. So we need evidence. I think the more we have evidence, we are credible. Uh, if we don't have evidence, then uh, we will uh, be like other people uh, conjecturing in this area, we won't be robust. And so uh, that is my focus, making sure that we are very well evidenced. And if I finish with a few of the big research questions, there are some big questions in the science which Jason knows more about than me. Uh, I think they are around climate sensitivity, around climate impacts. Once we understand more about the science, I think we have to keep under review, well, is the climate objective I've described to you, uh, does it continue to be an appropriate objective? And in thinking about that, well, there's maybe an economic way of thinking about it using cost-benefit analysis. I think if you want to go down that path using what are called integrated assessment models, there's a lot of work to do making those more granular and more credible. Uh, there are other ways that don't involve cost-benefit analysis of thinking about climate objectives, which I think are equally valid, so using multi-criteria analysis. So there's questions around the science, there's questions around uh, what you make of the science, the implications and the judgments that you make around that. And then certainly for my organisation, what we will be focused on is, I've said that we, at the moment, have legislated what is an economically sensible path uh, to 2050. And certainly I think that is true, but not everybody agrees with me. Uh, so when I go and tell this story, I get a lot of reactions that, well, how can that be the economically sensible path when we haven't got a global deal to reduce emissions? What about in a shale gas world? which is a game-changer, look how it's changed America, doesn't that change what we should do here and, and say it's a bit silly to be on the low-carbon path as you've described it. So 
I think we are on the economically sensible path, but I think there's a lot of research to do just to explain why it is economically sensible for us to be on the front foot here, uh, developing low-carbon technologies, investing in those, absorbing that into the capital stock as that turns over, and that is a big focus for our organisation over the next year or so. So given what's happened internationally, given what's happened with the gas price, given a whole range of uncertainty of the future, why is it the, the, the sensible path that we are on? I think it is, but as I say, there's more work to do. There is more work to do on impacts as well of being on that path, whether it is around distribution, uh, affordability impacts of energy in the residential sector, poverty impacts, uh, whether it's about competitiveness impacts. So the evidence base, there is one there, but it needs to be developed further. We don't know all of the answers uh, there at the moment. So I'll finish with that and say that we, we uh, have developed a story. That story underpins a set of recommendations that we've made. Those recommendations are now in legislation, and the reason they're in legislation is because we've used research very heavily, because we are very focused on evidence and analysis. We'll continue to focus on that. It's important for our credibility, it's important for anybody interested in making sure that we have robust arguments to support what we are doing uh, here. Um, uh, there are some big questions still to answer on the science but also on the economics and um, for anybody who is interested and wants to help us answer those questions uh, we need all the help we can get so they will be very gratefully received. Thank you. Thank you David. And so the final contribution is from Sarah Samuel. Sarah's also at DEFRA at some time working on European trading schemes and uh, Sustainable Development Commission where she led on the climate change and energy team. But she's now in, in uh, Ofgem where she leads the sustainable energy policy team. So over to you, Sarah. Great. Thank you, Brian, and uh, thank you for inviting me along to uh, participate in this this evening. I feel like I've got an incredibly tough act to follow with the fantastic range of contributions we've already had in this, in this session and, and the previous ones. We've run out loud there the various roles that I've had over uh, the last 10 years or so. And uh, so what I'm going to do is sort of offer some reflections on where academic input has come into those, those roles. So this is entirely my, my personal reflections on that. And I'm going to get into the realm of academic, um, not academic, anecdotal evidence, which uh, you know, is often dismissed as not a very helpful uh, and not very rigorous um, uh, you know, form of evidence. And I, and I would entirely agree with that. Anecdotal evidence, though, does tell you something about my prejudices and perceptions. So my experience of how this has worked before will, you know, prejudice my expectations of how it's going to work, have potentially limits how it's going to work in the future. So that experience is something that you have to get over to be, you know, to be to be effective. And I was also reflecting that those three um, those three roles that I've had in Ofgem, in DEC, um, in DEFRA as it was at the time, and the, the policy areas now moved to DEC, and then in the Sustainable Development Commission, sort of reflect three quite different roles in public policy actually, one in central government, one as an advisor to central government and one at arm's length from government. So those, those are three quite, quite different, different roles even though they're all in the civil service and they, and they might look quite comparable on the outside. So when I was reflecting on what on earth am I going to say about the impact of uh, academic research on or climate change research on, on policy making, um, I set myself a little exam question, which was sort of how does how does off-gen access academic work now, and when does it work well? And I also tried to canvas some views internally about how well how well it was working. And I asked about two dozen people, sort of in various ways, over coffee, by email, and I had responses from three. 
And I think that in part reflects, you know, just the fact that people are busy, and in part reflects that perhaps people don't really notice the impact that academic work is work is having. And I don't think that's because it isn't there. I think it's because it comes in in a very different and very subtle way sometimes. And we heard earlier about how it can be really difficult to identify what the impact is. And I think that's because sometimes it's sort of more a process of osmosis than necessarily kind of a really direct impact. So thinking about some of the ways that uh, we connect with academic communities now, it's obviously conferences, events like this, conversations over coffee, seminars. I actually, one of the things my team does is run a series of internal seminars for the senior management team in Ofgem where I get people in who are perhaps a bit unconventional in Ofgem terms and I give them a brief to be provocative and they come in and try and sort of challenge our thinking about uh, climate change and other sustainable development issues. Um, we also have directly commissioned research from academics sometimes. We recently did a piece of work, a quite technical piece of work about um, connection charging for the transmission network and we uh, commissioned academic work to help us in our thinking on that. And to some extent, through reading journals and papers. But to be honest, I mean, it really depends quite on who you're trying to target. And for the majority of people that you're trying to get to, you're trying to get key messages across, journals and papers are not really the way that, that that's going to happen, because that's a lot of detailed information that we're just not going to get, get to grips with. Now, another strategy which I recently adopted, which has turned out to be very successful, was to poach some really good academic staff. So I've recently had someone join my team from the UK Energy Research Council, and that's brilliant, because he knows everything that's going on on energy research in the academic world at the moment. The real challenge now is keeping that, that knowledge up, now that, now that we've managed to get him in on the inside. Now, as well as those direct impacts, there, of course, are sort of indirect impacts. So Juliet uh, talked about the work that she does, Good Energy does, with, uh, with academics, and of course then you know, Good Energy come in and talk to us about, you know, we've done this really great research. So there's that indirect route as well, you know, particularly from energy companies, uh, from consumer groups, and also from green groups. And I think the, the times when this has worked best, and we've, we've touched on a number of these things before th this afternoon, is when the work is accessible, relevant, the right time and in the right context. And there's just a couple of examples that um, I was going to mention here. So I think one example where that's worked well, I mean, this was quite a, was quite a sort of light touch approach, but um, around 12 months ago, we had Nick Pigeon from Cardiff University come in and talk about his work on public perceptions of climate change and pu what public attitudes were to climate change. And that was at a time when there was perceptions uh, sort of through the media in Ofgem, I think in other policy making circles, that public interest in climate change was on the wane. Uh, you know, the economy is much more of an issue. There's a limited number of things you can worry about if you can't, you know, if you can't pay pay your bills. Who cares about whether the, we're going to be living in a slightly warmer planet in 50 years' time? And he came in and showed that, yeah, interest has dipped. It has reduced from its peak, but actually, it's still a big majority of people who think that climate change is an important issue. And I think what that did was quite subtly sort of shift the background narrative. So the narrative was not so much more about, oh, consumers don't care about climate change anymore. It was kind of, oh, well, they might not care quite as much as they used to, but it's still clearly a really important issue. And I wouldn't like to point to a decision that we made differently as a result of that. I don't think it's possible to, but it sort of just subtly shifted that, that, mi that mindset. And what was also really helpful there was that it was, uh, it was very accessible and relevant. So I think one of the challenges that we have is that it's a very, you know, there's a vast array of academic work, work out there. And uh, you know, we were able to just get one person in and get some really succinct key messages. 
about what was coming out of that, that research and at quite a, quite, a, quite a senior level. And then following on from that, have established working relationships so that we're much closer to the research that's going on and also to inform our own uh, consumer research, consumer research programme. We also heard earlier about, uh, about timing and context, and, and these, are, these are really uh, critical. And I think there's often a sort of conflict in place between, um, in pace between academic versus policy making. I work very closely with Michael Grubb at, uh, at Off German, and when he first came in, I was talking to him about a, a policy project, and I said, oh, don't, you know, Michael, don't worry about them too much. We've got a lot more time on that. We need to do that in six weeks. And he nearly fell off his chair, because when, when I said, well, we've got a lot more time on that, he was thinking a year or two. But, uh, you know, in my world, six weeks is quite a lot of time to think about something. So, uh, you know, there's a, there is a real challenge there. And there was, um, I've got the, the example I was thinking of here, and this is not academic research, fairly early on in my career off Germ, I commissioned and ran a, a, a piece of research, a piece of consumer research about uh, putting comparative information on bills. So this is, this is about you know, comparing customers' use this quarter with last quarter, or last year, or their neighbours. And we, do, we did a bit of consumer research to identify what consumers liked, what was helpful to them. Uh, and this is sort of at the drive of information being able to help people manage their, manage their energy use. And we did that, you know, this was work commissioned by Ofgem, we did that piece of work, it was a good piece of work, it showed that, you know, there, there is a market failure, that this information isn't coming forward, it showed that there is information that people can engage with and would find useful. And we weren't able to get traction internally to take that forward to any sort of firm policy proposals about what you put on bills. And so, you know, nice piece of work, very good. We're not doing it now. About three or four years later, um, a European directive came into existence. I can't think which one it was. I think it might have been the energy end use one. All of a sudden, every meeting I went to in off-German government, there were people armed with my report going, oh, there's a really good bit of work off-German did. Now, that's, you know, that's, it wasn't a bad piece of work a few years previously. It was just you know, not, not well-timed. Well there was not the political will or the priority to look at that, that question at the time that we did the research. The thing that was important though was that that research was there and ready to go at the point that we needed to do the implementation. Because I think one of the challenges is by the time policymakers have got to thinking about a question, it's probably too late to do much fundamental research to change, change our thinking. So in fact that research needs to be there and ready for us to just pick up and, and run with <coughs> at the point that we decide it's an important issue that we're going to work on. Your guess is as good as mine as how we, you know, how those those things bubble up about which one is the, the important thing to work on. And the other the other thing I wanted to just mention was about context. And it's, you know, we've got four people here who all work in very very different contexts. And sort of getting uh, getting the message on on board with different organisations takes different different approaches. So, you know, Ofgem's role is to protect the interests of consumers, uh, present present and future. That's a different role to the role of government, which is about you know, public, public interest in the broader sense, and a different role to the role of advisory bodies, like the Sustainable Development Commission as well as so the Climate Change Committee, whose job it is to really sort of push at, push at the envelope and, and really sort of try and think uh, much more strategically and long term and critically about, about some of these, these issues. So another anecdotal piece of evidence there, when I was at the Sustainable Development Commission, um, I was actually working on a review of Ofgem and how Ofgem contributed to sustainable development. And uh, I often used to say to my colleagues, and you know, my colleagues would say, oh, you know, I just don't understand why Ofgem don't get this, why don't they do it, it's the right thing to do. And I'd say, well, 
you're trying to appeal to Ofgem's better nature, and it doesn't have one. Now, that's not, that's not really true, because, but what Ofgem does have is a set of statutory duties, and unless a better nature is written into those statutory duties, then you know, it's not going to respond to it. So how, how you, you know, influencing, understanding the organisation and what its priorities are, are a really important part of, uh, of how to influence it. So I hope that's given you a bit of a sense of some of the things that sort of I've experienced over my 10 or so years uh, sort of in public policy making. I mean, really, all of those elements are about getting the communications right, and we, we heard about that earlier this, al this afternoon as well. And it does take time and effort, and I think it takes time and effort on, on both sides to, re to really get there. So thank you very much for listening, and I'm really looking forward to hearing your questions and discussion. Four panelists. Uh, we've heard about climate science providing a context, and then climate science, techn the technologies, the economics, and the social aspects informing the actual decisions made. And um, I suppose it's been mainly mitigation, but adaptation is also part of the agenda. We might, you please do raise that if you wish. But let me now open it up to you. I, I, I think as before, we'll take three at a time. And I can certainly see two there. And Bob, I think, is going to perhaps say some. Well, I wouldn't prejudge what he's going to say. Bob Ward from the Grantham Research Institute here at LSE. This is a question for Jason. I was wondering if you could say a bit about how Met Office goes about measuring and evaluating the impact of its work on non-research audiences. Um, my name is Ian McCabe. I'm a psychologist. I have two questions, uh, perhaps directed at Dr. Mia. First one is in relation to public relations, uh, advertising, marketing the idea of climate change to the public. Uh, it's been said that uh, a large majority of people already have a favorable um, commitment to, to climate change, yet uh, they, they, that energy doesn't appear to be harnessed in relation to leading the politicians. I'm thinking in, in, in terms of tipping a balance, there was a famous ad campaign as to how to convince women to smoke around about 1918. It was linked to the suffragette movement and cigarettes were called torches of freedom. Would it really take such a brilliant ad man to, to get the climate change across. Uh, similarly, to, to look at the, the critics of climate change as just flat earth scientists, whatever. My second point uh, to Dr. Mia really is uh, food production. My understanding is that farming animals creates more uh, greenhouse emission gas than, than um, the motor industry. Thank you. Okay, right. Well, is there a third one to add on to those? Okay, yes, let's add that one on too, as long as you can remember that. And can I say, by the way, David Kennedy is going to disappear at <coughs> past seven, so you should make sure he has a hard time before he goes. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you said that, because my question was for him. It's bad okay. maybe. <laughs> so, uh, my question is to D David. You know, uh, you've got uh, a lot of economists working for you. Um, you've, you've worked out a sort of feasible strategy, you've got it into legislation. Have you ever modelled it uh, with some political science, done some political risk analysis and, and, 
and so on. Because I know that, for example, uh, some of my students did a project for Arab a couple of years ago, just looking at uh, what would be needed to get, you know, 80% reduction by 2050. I mean, how many elections is that between now and then? How many uh, London mayoral uh, incumbents would there be between now and then? And the answers, you know, when you look at it in these terms, are, are quite scarily, you know, it's it's a fast rate of, of political change that you seem to be uh, planning for. And um, I just wondered, uh, have you endogenized the political in your evidence base? Thinking, or are you just treating this as, you know, one of these little local difficulties that will just beaver away in the background and, and go AWOL without your having any, any grip on it? Thank you. You've got time to think of that one, David. Right, Jason. That's a very specific question, which had the, uh, the mess of his uh, measures that. And okay, the long answer, you can come to the Met Office and we'll, we'll show you. The short answer, there are lots of different ways, it depends on which channel we're using. So there are basic methods um, related to the website and stats on visiting particular pages. There are events where we have a display stand and we invite members of the public to come and talk to us at things like the Ideal Home Exhibition. That provides really valuable feedback because you're not just getting a, a sort of blunt instrument of, of did you like this page or not, you actually get to talk to people. Um, we also um, contributed to some research organised with one of the, the research um, councils involving uh, Emily Shutbury, who remember a year or so ago, um, that looked at not only the wider views of uh, the UK public on climate change, but also how they were receiving messages, including uh, through Met Office channels. Um, we're also starting to think about how we um, how we monitor new media um, with more going on via the, the Twitter route. Sorry, can I ask about the policymakers as well, not just public? Okay, um, so you'll know over the past um, past four or five years, as we look at the um, the main Happy Centre programme in particular, and I'll focus on that. We've been through a whole series um, of reviews, the Beddington Review, the Lawton Review, etc., um, that have looked at a whole range of metrics of how we are providing uh, information to customers like those at DEC and DEFRA. Um, we've been through a similar process. Um, with the AVOID programme um, very recently and that will become public very shortly. Um, so we don't just take our, if you like, our, our own, um, yes we think we're, we're doing a good job, there is independent um, assessments of both the public engagement and the policy maker engagement out there. Imagine at least marketing. Right, marketing, we tried it. Uh, you remember a couple of years ago, there was a big advertising campaign on television and posters uh, on, on, on climate change, and um, we got our fingers burned badly. Uh, it was referred to the Advertising Standards Authority, and, and we lost the case. Now, it turned on, it, because it's such a, um, there are quite a, vociferous uh, constituency who are opposed to any action, who are well funded, uh, there was a huge, a huge amount of, um, uh, uh, well, there was a big uh, correspondence campaign, huge number of letters, objections, legal challenges to that. Now, in retrospect, with hindsight, I think uh, it may not be the most sensible, 
wasn't the most sensible thing to do because it is a um, it's 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 not something uh, that you can simply market. It is uh, there's got to be a discourse about it. There's got to be a conversation about it. It's not something you can say as I was saying earlier on uh, that you can say this is the truth. Uh, therefore, you must accept it. Uh, so. What has to happen, and this is something we work with, Jason mentioned Emily, I think what the science community has to do, and this certainly was a message that came up, up, up after Climate Gate, has to go out and engage with people. Um, and engage, and when, when, when organisations like ScienceWise run um, things like a, a consensus conference, they find quite interesting things happening. The dynamics are quite interesting. People who start off and say, well, I don't believe any of this stuff. Um, you know, uh, with, with a conversation, with, with, with that kind of discursive approach, do change their views. Uh, so I go for that, rather, that kind of approach, rather than uh, an advertising approach uh, myself. There's 60 million people in this country and 300 climate scientists. Yeah. How do you do that? Well, it's, you don't have to be, uh, uh, you know, the, <laughs> like yourself, director of the Gravity Institute to interact. There are lots of people who are, uh, who are sufficiently competent in understanding the technical issues. Now, I mean, the basic physics, I think, are incontrovertible. You, you know, you've got to, you've got to be, uh, well, how shall I put this politely? You've got to be, you've got to be really cussed to, to dispute the basic physics. Uh, then the issue is uh, the uncertainty around uh, what might happen in the future. Now, uh, as uh, Jason said, there is some uncertainty in, in, in that. But um, if you count in terms of risk, there's uncertainty. It's likely to happen if you do if you do uh, if you don't do anything about it in terms of greenhouse gas concentration in the atmosphere and how that feeds back into the climate system pretty compelling information uh, and it's just getting that across and, uh, and discussing it as equals rather than just you know a, uh, a, um, uh, uh, some kind of authority from, from high just telling people. Um, so I think there's got to be the activity by the science community both both in this country and, uh, and the US in particular because I think in the US maybe it's because of the vociferousness of the Republican Party uh, a lot of scientists, some of the best climate scientists in the world, basically bunkered down. They don't talk to anybody other than, other than those people who agree with them, with, with, with other, very honourable exceptions. Uh, on food production and animals, that's a real issue. Uh, if, if um, with the uh, growing affluence of India and China, the expectation is that the amount of meat consumption will increase substantially. If it does increase, it becomes a a major co contribution to greenhouse gas uh, emissions, so that has to be tackled at some point. Uh, we, we say that carbon plant is one of the difficult things that will put off in the 2030s, uh, but it's a challenge. Thank you. David, uh, do you know your politics? I do. I was just going to quickly come back on, on uh, a couple of the other points as well. I, I think in terms of energising people, uh, I think we all know that most people uh, would be uh, concerned about climate change, but that's probably where it stops. A lot of people think, well, climate change, they've got apocalyptic visions of what is going to happen, and, and the response to that is, well, okay, I'll bury my head in the sand. Um, there's very few people who can tell you 
uh, a, a clear, robust argument about why it's in our interest to act and what I can do here. I don't think that's resonated at all. I think what, what we need to do is address some of the questions on the scientific uncertainties for the public, but I don't think we need to labour too hard on the science. I think we've got to quickly move on to well, why is it sensible to do this from an economic perspective and what is it that I can do and you can do in my everyday life. And you know, Let's be clear, this is not transformational stuff we're asking people to do, it's, it's looking at what your fuel efficiency is on your car when you buy it and buying a more efficient rather than a less efficient one. And when somebody knocks on your door and says, I'll insulate your loft, it's saying, yeah, actually that's a, a good thing to do for a number of reasons. Now, we need a narrative. I think the problem is we, we haven't got a narrative at the moment that is a strong one. Certainly it's not resonated, and that is a good job, I think, for the government as well as a whole range of organisations and, and particularly commercial organisations who are skilled at developing narratives in specific areas like more efficient cars and energy companies trying to sell you energy efficiency improvements and whatever. I think it's very hard to have a, a, a compelling narrative until you've got the policies in place that enable people to act, actually. Otherwise, it's, it's simply a high-level kind of good intention story about you know, what is it I can actually do well you can't do anything for, for several years. I think that's the problem for the Low Carbon Transition Plan, uh, which was published in 2008, for example, which told a high-level story and it didn't have any sense of well, what is it that can happen on the ground uh, in order to bring that story into, into uh, reality. So I think that's the challenge. It's a narrative, but it's a set of policies that, that go with that narrative and, and make it a reality, which it's not at the moment. Uh, agriculture, by the way, is... is, is about 40 million tonnes emissions from 570 in the UK at the moment. About half of that is from methane, uh, from livestock, cattle and, and sheep. Uh, now, over time, probably, it is something we should be thinking about. How can you get people to eat less carbon-intense food? And that's in particular means less red meat. And it is a difficult one. So I raised it. It got on the front page of the, the Times and then it got on not the nine o'clock news or not. So have I got have I got news for you? Um, and it resulted in me getting a lot of hate mail for suggesting you might eat steak every two weeks rather than every one week. So it's a tricky one, it is one week we should probably be thinking about in the end. But you now let's be clear, you can meet that eighty percent target without everybody becoming vegetarian. It's about finding the balance. It certainly isn't as big as the cars, the amount of no. emissions. I mean, car, cars emissions are about 70 to 80, 80 million tonnes, so from livestock is about 20. It's a whole set of, of questions around neuropsychologists, psychology. You know, how is it that we could get people to rebalance their diets? What are the levers we can pull? But similarly, how can we get people to use the thermostat sensibly in their house? How can we get them to improve energy efficiency, to buy electric vehicles, to, uh, to to travel on public transport rather than private transport. And the answer is that we don't have a good understanding, or at least if there is a good understanding of what levers you can pull, it's not permeated into climate change policy. So there's a lot of talk about behaviour change, but I don't think we've got the answers there. There is a lot of behaviour change needed. It's not fundamental and radical and everyone has to live in a cave and, and be cold and, and in the dark and not travel anywhere. but. Uh, we, we do need to pull some levers and I think there are some big research questions there on social research and certainly for us we are looking for input on the social research, the psychology side of things. Now, to the question that was actually directed at me, uh, the whole point of the Climate Change Act is recognising that the problem you've set out, that there are long-term benefits acting on climate change but short-term costs which is not a good fit for the, the political cycle. Um, the, the Climate Change Act was supposed to make commitments that cut across parliaments. Um, in that context, we focused on saying, well, what are the sensible commitments to 
to make now across parliaments what are the set of things we should do and, and, and in short we haven't focused on the politics and the political risks. Uh, I think that is becoming more of an issue so you can make commitments under the Climate Change Act but whether we actually then put in place the policies that will uh, 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 make good on those commitments, whether we fund those policies as we move into the implementation phase which is where we are now so we've got a good high level story but we've not implemented it we've got to think a lot more about the politics which for me again is why I keep coming back to saying we've got to have a compelling narrative a very good economic story which the politicians will buy into and then uh, you know, George Osborne where he says we can't close down the economy and we've got to get off this low carbon path he'll say well we've got to be on the low carbon path because it makes sense from an economic perspective so there's a big challenge in, in, in terms of uh, politics and, and political risk and in terms of formal analysis of political risk we haven't done anything but it is something I'll be very interested in, in looking into now because uh, as I say it, it is the key issue the, the political risks around low carbon are very pronounced uh, certainly here in this country at the moment there's a lot of political debate and we need to understand the politics and cut through that if we're to carry on doing what I think is the, the, the right thing for this country. Sarah, did you want to come in on any of those items? Or would you wait for another one? The, the only uh, thing I'd pick up on is this point about sort of marketing to the public. And uh, I mean, this is a sort of question that comes up for Ofgem quite a lot, actually. So, why doesn't Ofgem have a role in this? And sort of our response is always, well, our job is to reflect the consumer interest, not to drive the consumer interest. So I suppose the other. Um, uh, Point that occurred to me there was about uh, sort of how you get information out to out to people and whether information is really enough to change uh, behaviour. More anecdotal evidence. When I was at the Sustainable Development Commission, I used to fly on holiday, which uh, got me terrible flack from my colleagues about, oh my God, how can you fly anywhere? You know how terrible it is. To which my response was, that shows you that information is not enough. You know, I know, I know the impacts of aviation, I know the impacts of climate change, and I still buy on holiday. So it's going to take something else to change my behaviour. Okay, thank you. Right, so do we have some more questions? Yes, one back there. Um, Jack Nichols, UK Energy Research Council. Uh, my first question is, is to Sarah. Uh, you mentioned you have a roughly six weeks to, to sort of come up with a policy decision, and that's a luxury amount of time. Uh, that's sort of appalling, I think, uh, considering the amount of time that goes into the research that probably informs your policies. Do you think there's a potential need for a change in the structures of Whitehall or other organisations in terms of sort of the policy-making process and giving yourselves more time? Um, so, yeah, that's one, one question. The second question is uh, to all of you. Uh, just wondered if you have access to uh, journals to uh, peer-reviewed journals, if you have subscriptions to, to sort of journal providers, um, so which of your organisations do or, or don't? Okay, thank you. Right. Neil, I think. Uh, no, wait, wait for it. No, this is for David. If I no, 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 Slightly generally and then more specifically, David, I mean, you emphasise very much that the climate change conclusions are evidence-based and based on science. I think that's, that's commendable. Of course, as uh, Maynard Keynes famously said, you know, if the evidence changes, I change my... Uh, and one of the areas that's under debate, I don't know if the energy evidence, if you would think the evidence has changed, is, you know, the whole impact of the 
on the energy scene of the changing gas outlook, where the government seems to be sort of shifting its policy. And certainly this new policy on gas, you know, grandfathering gas thing seems to have shifted a bit. And I wasn't sure on your opening remarks whether you were hinting that that was being sort of reviewed in some way in uh, the climate change. So I suppose that's what I'm going to ask you. Is that something that is being looked at within the committee or, or not? Okay, right. Is there a third one you'd like to uh, ask now? No? Okay, well, I'll give you time to think about it, right? No, oh, Simon Buckle. No, yeah, okay. So, so yes, one, one more question. Yes, sorry, I can't sit down yet. You look far too comfortable. Hi, Simon Buckle from Imperial Grantham as well. I was just struck, Jason, by your curves that you showed at the outset where, you know, lowering the target or raising the target, actually, making it less, less ambitious to 2.5, you know, raises uh, the spectre that there's a lot more low-cost options, solutions for the government. And I suspect if you showed that to certain members of the government or the opposition, even, um, you might get uh, a retort that, well, why aren't we doing a 2.5 target instead of a 2-degree target? So as a scientist, you know, you, you're working with different areas that are... It's fundamental science in, in terms of physics, there's climate science with the models, you've got economics, you've got social impacts. You know, they're all tremendously different, and they've all got tremendously different characteristics in terms of um, how well understood the processes are, the, the degree to which we really understand the processes that are happening and the uncertainties around them. And so, is, is there some sort of special training you get in the Hadley Centre? I mean, could be anywhere. In presenting, you know, what is, you know, a, a model simulation that suggests, you know, on the face of it, 2.5 is, is far, far easier politically and economically than, than 2. Uh, and yet, you know, the, the, the counter narrative, well, we don't know where the, the major thresholds are in the climate system, but the, obviously the higher the target, the closer we are to those, uh, the impacts will be greater. Of course, it's not 2.5 globally, you know, there's regional variations, so the impacts will be tremendously high elsewhere, etc., etc. But But that's all very, very uncertain in terms of the model outputs. So how do you then say to, you know, Nafis and to Nafis's political masters, you know, we still should stay with two degrees? Okay, thank you. Right. Okay, right, David, I know you've got, why don't you answer yours first, okay? Mm, okay. So we, we are proudly Keynesian in that respect. If the facts change, we are happy to change our position as well and, and should do. Uh, a, a lot of people are Keynesian like that, or say they are, so you, you may have seen Lord Turnbull who said that he's Keynesian, he's seen that the, the, the planet hasn't warmed up in the last few years, so he rejects the climate science on that basis. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it, it can be misused, that He also talks about Galileo, and uh, Galileo uh, was not uh, believed by everybody when he first <coughs> came up with these, these great insights that he had. and, and uh, Maybe we'll all follow Lord Turnbull in rejecting the climate science as well. But uh, now, being serious on, on this specific question, uh, there are people who say it is a game changer. The facts have changed. Look at America uh, and look at the impact that shale gas has had there. Uh, so it's transformed the gas price in America. There's a lot of low-cost gas, and, and there's a lot of investment going into uh, getting that shale gas out of the ground, for example, into uh, gas-fired power generation and, and we have put the Keynesianism into practice so we've said well does that change things you know given that the power sector decarbonisation is at the heart of our story yeah, 
have we got it wrong actually or do we need to update that story and, and so we've done a lot of modelling of well what is a sensible investment strategy in a very low gas price world uh, and the answer is actually what, what we are committed to do here under the fourth carbon budget is sensible even in a very low gas price world and for that matter it is sensible in a world where you don't get the uh, the global agreement that embodies the, the pathways that we originally used with the early peaking of emissions, that it's also sensible to decarbonise in a, 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 a later action scenario. So we're always looking at these things, trying to understand the uncertainties. Those uncertainties are changing over time as we get new information and we feed that back in. But there's nothing we've seen in terms of new information that says, well, what we committed to a year ago and what we committed to three years ago in terms of the 80% target, there's nothing that tells us that has fundamentally changed, so we're on the right path. Now, in the government, you know, are they thinking it's a game changer, even though we don't think it? Uh, they are asking the question, well, what does it mean? They're asking that in the context of a gas generation strategy, which was announced uh, the budget in March, and where that will come out, I hope it will come out and say, well, it is sensible, even in a, a shale gas and a low gas price world, to continue to try to decarbonise the power sector. And I think there is a lot of support actually for that story across uh, a whole range of government departments, organisations, individuals. There are people who have the opposing view, but we'll see how that plays out uh, over the next few months. If it were to be a Keynesian evidence-based decision on the future of gas generation in this country, uh, our analysis says, well, even in a shale gas world, we should decarbonise and there be a residual role for gas on the system unless it has carbon capture and storage and that is a debate to have here over the next uh, six months because I think they're going to publish that in autumn. Okay, thank you Dave. And before you go, do you take the journals and the CCC? We, we, we do take journals, not the whole range of them, but we, we do have access to okay. some journals and we, we also I think we tend to access through things like UK Energy Research Centre and reviews of literature that they do that feeds back into to our thinking so we get an economy of scale or something of that sort via your kind of organisation. Okay, thanks Dave. Can I just say, Dave was on the radio yesterday um, and he said Look, we made a commitment. Uh, there's a legal obligation to meet targets. David saying you're wrong, and that's what we'll do. Now, there's a, there's an issue about there's an issue about uh, shale gas, which we're looking at. But nonetheless, the government is is as uh, evidenced by what they, uh, David said yesterday on the radio, is committed to delivering for the government, which is enacted in law. So that's what it will do. How how it will reconcile issues about whether could be a very low gas price. I don't know yet, but we're still looking at that. But I thought it's interesting to listen to uh, Fatty Burrell. He gave a talk at uh, Imperial College uh, earlier this year. <coughs> Interestingly enough, uh, even with low gas prices because of shale gas around the world, we, uh, the world in 2030 will depend on two countries, Russia for gas and Iraq for oil. Now, any sense but sensible person thinking about that would think that's crazy to rely on those two countries. Those two countries will be the cornerstone of the gas market and the oil market, respectively. Why would you want to put yourself in that position for a short-term, short-term benefit from a low gas price? So the government is committed to uh, delivering for the carbon budget. Just going back to, to Patrick's point, this is the most important political issue on the whole agenda at the moment. Energy affordability, all the survey evidence says, is what people are concerned about in the recession, more so than, than losing the job and, and real incomes declining. 
the politicians are aware of that, and that's all they care about. And energy affordability, what is the impact going to be on energy affordability? Um, there are arguments around that shale gas is good for affordability, offshore wind is bad, nuclear is bad, onshore wind is bad for, for visual disamenity for some people. And there's a whole load of different political interests at play there, and so the challenge is to steer through that. But as I say, if you take the evidence-based approach, I think you end up where uh, we, we committed a year ago, and I hope that's what Right, we'll return to the, the order then. Sarah, six weeks, six weeks is a long time or a short time? <laughs> well, we'll be pleased to know that six weeks isn't the full policy development process. It is typically, though, the length of time that we'd have between a consultation closing and us needing to incorporate any information we receive from the consultation responses into a sort of our first internal draft proposal or draft decisions and then go through our internal process because typically our projects are on a sort of are in three months chunks so we have a three month consultation and we put out a paper we expect people to respond to us in three months and so we think it's only reasonable that then we respond in in three months and you know that doesn't doesn't give you much time I would say on, on some on some um, areas we're constrained by legislative timetable actually that we we are legally obliged to reach decisions within a certain length of time and we have lost judicial review cases on the basis that we have been a day or two late. So, you know, those time pressures are are very real. Equally, I would say there are other occasions when we get the evidence and we say, hang on a minute, this is way bigger and way more complicated than we thought. You know, we're not going to do it this year, we're going to take more time over it, we'll set up a separate project to think about it. Um, so it's complicated, but as we've heard a number of times, you know, there's different in different contexts will take you know different lengths of time. I think the real point though is that, um, you know, as I, I said before, the sort of research needs to be there and sort of off the shelf and ready for us to use most of the time. There are some exceptions for that. The work we did on transmission <coughs> charging, where we commissioned some specific research uh, around transmission charging models. That said, that was not really new thinking. It was more a review of sort of existing existing uh, uh, approaches in, in different countries and existing existing theories. So there wasn't particularly sort of new academic thinking being, being developed through that. Um, and yeah, maybe it's too fast. Uh, many in the energy industry would say we're not fast enough, that we are, you know, drag our heels, we're slowing down the pace of change in the energy industry. Um, so we are always walking that tightrope. Okay. Can I just yeah. come in very quickly on that? I mean, two things strike me from the sort of provider perspective. One of them, the, the sort of six weeks time scale, I can identify with that. And one of the things in the, the AVOID program we tried to recognize was that actually there is a lot of literature out there on a lot of these subjects. And there's a process of bringing that together, really trying to draw out what it's saying across uh, an array of often differing opinions um, from the scientific journals. So I very much recognize the, uh, the need for that. The other side of it, you highlighted the research has to be there. That is one of the most difficult things, of course, yes, uh, when looking at the underpinning research. Yeah. And when you think of developing a new climate model, there's something like 150 man years goes into developing a, a new climate model. Um, and so there has to be some degree of spotting what is likely to be the next big question or the next process that's missing and what are the policy implications that that might be able to inform 
Can, can I just add, um, you, you, you need to be careful about this because in terms of broad policy, say in, in climate and energy, um, it, it takes place over a long period of time. That's, that's what happens. But the, um, uh, the climate, responding to climate change is a big policy issue. It's taking more. We're still going on, but it, you know, highlights this issue in the 80s, well, way back in the 70s. Uh, people started doing stuff about it in the in the 90s and really not going in the mid 2000s. So the actual policy process has been quite long and drawn out. And you could take long-term evidence uh, and research input into that process. Now, on top of that, there's a there's this uh, much shorter-term stuff that goes on where uh, minister wants to announce something, and that's the six-week stuff. You just got to live with it because. Uh, it would be part of this kind of political process that requires you to have practical interventions you can, have, you can announce and you have to do stuff very quickly. Now, in my position as this um, as a kind of um, interface between the academic community and the policy quote policy makers, or whatever I that term, is I think really we're all policy, we're all engaged in the policy process in some way or other. But in my uh, what I try to do is kind of See if what's you know through people like Jason and the Avoid program. See what's there we can draw on quickly to respond to those kind of short-term things. But at the same time, make sure that there is that longer-term research program that's ongoing because without that, you're not going to be able to answer those short, short-term uh, meet those short-term evidence needs. So it is a bit of a juggling, but I don't think there's a it's it's too. I mean, sometimes it is it is a uh, it, it is silly when uh, I won't make anything. In particular, but you're expected to turn things around very, very quickly when you say, "Well, okay, it's not physically possible to do it in that time." Uh, but that's thankfully fairly rare. Okay, thank you. So, um, that's sort of not a million miles from this other thing. Jason, you're trained as a climate science scientist, and you suddenly say, "Well, let's let's think about two and a half degrees." And are you really trained in all the implications of mentioning a number like that? And uh, do you have all the disciplines behind you to do this? Or one and a half degrees. <laughs> it also makes it one and a half degrees. Okay. Uh, the interest in that. So certainly the view we, we take at the Met Office, we're not advocating a particular target. And if you were to delve, for instance, into the report on the Avoid website around targets, you'll see we've gone from the, um, the lowest targets that the modelling system allows, which is sort of around 1.5, 1.6, illustrating the climate system behaviour for a whole range of targets. We're not saying one of those is, 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 is right or wrong. What we're trying to give is a very wide view over the science. We're not taking a particular angle and campaigning for that. Coming to the particular view on targets and what targets is, is right or wrong, well, we can't possibly say that as climate scientists because it's not just a, a climate science question. What we can do is provide some of the information around some of the consequences. So we can talk around, for instance, what one and a half degrees or two or two and a half degrees might mean for, for instance, um, the long-term uh, existence of the Greenland ice sheet with very wide error bars, and the error bars will be you know, very wide on those. And we can work with um, other disciplines to explore some of the other consequences um, 
impacts on people and economics, for instance. But we can only get part way there as climate scientists. As, as for training on that, um, that's kind of what research is about, so taking a balanced, a balanced view. Simon, you want to come back? I'll do the same. <laughs> <laughs> right, I think we've probably, we, given what Patrick said before, I'll have one more question with the short answers from the panel, right? Who's going to provide the last question? Always a dangerous thing to say, isn't it? The last question. I'll ask Bob, the second, can I ask the second question? If I yeah, you can. Ask uh, this is for Nafis. I was going to ask about um, whether you think the research community needs to be more proactive in engaging um, not so much people in DEC but in other government departments about these issues because there are strong and persistent rumours about the uh, enthusiasm with which Nigel Lawson and his group are lobbying particularly Treasury and the question is whether their, their actions need to be um, balanced without researchers becoming advocates but being more proactive in engaging uh, policymakers beyond DEC. Yeah, um, I can see there's a case for doing that because uh, because of its very nature, Treasury is stuffed full of economists. Uh, what, what Nigel Lawson uses is a very a very narrow uh, economistic argument about an interpretation of cost-benefit analysis. That's, that's basically uh, if you apply discount rate, there's no point doing anything. Uh, now I can see some economists being being uh, influenced by that. So uh, what it fails to see is the kind of the other side, the tipping points, the potential for uh, irreversible changes, uh, which uh, it's difficult to uh, model economically, and people have recognised that. Uh, so yeah, it might be worthwhile to do that, uh, particularly with Treasury, because I don't think they have many uh, much in how science experts is. They don't have a chief Oh, they do have a chief He's an economist. <laughs> <laughs> so how can scientists talk to the Treasury? Well, I mean, there is a chief scientist network, as you know, yes. John Benson, so that might be good. Mm. Okay, I think um, we should thank the, the four minus one panellists, and uh, so on your behalf, let's thank them. here would like the last word. Otherwise, I will thank the organisers on your behalf. So thank you very much to those who organised the session today.